If it isn't the illustrious Michael Joseph Sokolovsky. Um, hello, Hava. <laughs> I can tell you're just radiating with positive energy today. <sighs> yeah, I just feel grumpy today. I think also just the topic we're going to talk about today, it's kind of making me a little, I'm a little miffed at myself, I think. For selecting it? Yeah, a little bit. Say more. Okay, you know how you don't like girls or Gilmore Girls? Uh-huh. And you know how I proved last time through sophisticated, argumentative style that that was totally based on just your your squishy, squishy-feely right, feelings? Right, neuroses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is not based in, like, objective TV quality. <laughs> right, rigorous literary criticism. <laughs> Yeah. I kind of feel that way about Akiva. Did we already mention that this episode's going to be about Akiva, Rabbi Akiva? Not yet, but I'm sure we can loop back. I just have feelings and, and I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Like you think the topic isn't interesting enough or what? Like, is, is it interesting enough? Also, I don't really like the mythology around him all that much either. But you don't not like it in a way that's interesting. Because if you dislike it in an interesting way, then like, that's fine, you know? Well, I guess the question I have to ask myself is, do I find your dislike of Gilmore Girls and Girls interesting? <laughs> I mean, he's certainly a problematic character once you start thinking about him too much. Oh, okay, good. I'm excited to hear about that. I wish I had something juicy to tell you. I feel like you're the one with the juicy news. Well, yeah, I got a lot of juicy stuff going on. Let's dive into your juicy news. Okay, well, the first piece of juicy news is that Last week, I was ordained. I'm now officially Rabbi Chava. So everything is different, you know, food tastes different, my farts smell different, you know, everything is infused with a rabbinic quality now. Okay, tell us everything. It was just a small, private, and very special ceremony. It's really not like that juicy of a tale to tell, I gave a blessing, I received a blessing. Did it hurt? Did it feel good? <laughs> when I fell from heaven. Yeah. Um, yeah, it felt very great and very special. It felt, you know, like it felt momentous. And then I like went home and like made myself a fried egg and put it on some rice and the momentousness sort of dissipated. And I just feel like it's the sort of momentous change that will sink in over time. You know, in like five years, I'll be like, oh, I can really see over these five years how becoming a rabbi has like changed my life trajectory. But in that moment, it was just like momentous for the time it was happening. And then it was like, OK, back to your regularly scheduled programming. I want to know, are you a certain like type of rabbi? Like, are you a fire rabbi or like a water <laughs> rabbi? Am I a firebender, airbender? If only rabbis got bending powers. Oh, that'd be so sweet. But no, no mystical powers have been bestowed upon me, unfortunately. I'm just a vanilla, a non-bending rabbi, an equalist, if you will. I think it'd be kind of cool if rabbis had the power to un- transubstantiate you know what i mean like <laughs> to reverse the communion yeah they couldn't go they couldn't do it in the first direction but they could do it in the backwards direction right right we can turn bread flesh back into bread bread yeah you can turn any body of jesus back into so could we have turned jesus themselves into bread yeah 
I mean, that would, Great. Be, that would be cool. <laughs> if only we had thought of that at the time. <laughs> so you're a rabbi, you're Rabbi Hava now. It's true. I put it in our podcast description. So it's really official. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And then, of course, the second thing is that a mere six days from today, I will have top surgery and a grand total of 810 cc's of silicone will be getting up in this pod. 810 cc's. Yeah. 405 on a side. 405 on a side. Okay, good. Yeah. That's cubic centimeters. Mm hmm. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. The human mind is not good at visualizing volumes. Yeah, and it's also like one of the hard things about choosing the volume of silicone is like it has so much to do with the shape of your chest, the like shape of your musculature, like how implants actually look on someone have so much to do with like intangible factors or tangible but mysterious. Okay. Is 405 cc's per side? Is that like a standard? It's all, so with silicone, everything is like prefabricated. So they only come in set fills. With saline, my understanding is they put like an empty implant in you and they fill it up with saline on the spot, like a gas pump. Oh, that's so silly. Oh, it's all very silly. It's all very, very silly. Everything is silly. Bodies are silly. Oh, okay. On a different note, though. I mean, we can talk about this more, but this just made me think of it. On October 7th, the new Hellraiser remake is coming out. Listeners have had no occasion to learn this about me yet, but I love the Hellraiser series. Okay, is that, that, is that a... That's a movie. Yeah, it is a horror series. It's the one with the guy with the pins in his head. Oh, a pinhead guy, yeah. Pinhead literally is what he's colloquially known as. Although his real character title is the Hell Priest. Is this like an 80s horror thing? Was that? Yeah, it started okay. in the 80s, but there have been eight films made. So you can see that it's been going for a long time. All right. Ooh, cool. It's great. I'm obsessed with it. To give you an impression of why you might like some of the Hellraiser movies, at one point, a character asks the creatures, the Pinhead people, like the Cenobites, what are you? And Pinhead's answer is adventurers in the far realms of experience, demons to some, angels to others. So it has like a, a big vibe. It's more of a vibe movie than a horror movie. Anyway, the remake is coming out and the girl, Jamie Clayton, I think is her name, who played the trans girl in Sense8 and also in the L Word Generation Q is going to be playing Pinhead this time around. So finally we get the trans feminine horror icon our culture has been waiting for. Oh, wait, wait, wait. But she's not trans. Wait, is she trans? I mean, trans? she's a... She's a she is trans in real life. Oh, okay, okay, okay. The character is like a you know, a a multi-dimensional hell being. Oh, so okay. like I don't think they I don't think Pinhead is like thinking about gender on that level. I see, okay. Okay, all right. But yeah, but one of the reasons they cast a woman basically is because they didn't want the performances to be compared to the old performances. So they were like, we're just going to do something so different that you're like not even so much comparing it from the beginning. It's like, this is a whole new start for the Hellraiser franchise. Hmm. I guess if that was their only goal, they could have just made a totally different movie. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But, you know, I'm glad you're excited. Oh, I'm so excited. And it's going to come out while I'm in top surgery recovery. So 
it'll be a great entertainment for me. What's the day-to-day going to be like? Is it a lot of staying in bed? Are you allowed to eat things? Yeah, I'm allowed to eat whatever. For the first week is like the main crucible. For a lot of people, if you get your implant put in over the muscle, then recovery is super quick, actually. But if, like me, you get your implant put in under the muscle, then recovery lasts a lot longer because they're in there messing with your pectoral muscles. So I can't like lift more than five pounds for like three weeks, but I'll be like up and walking around after a couple days, you know? So I don't think I'll be that deeply fucked up, but I'll have very specific limitations. What are you going to do with all your old bras? What am I going to do with all my old bras? I don't know. I haven't thought about that. I've been focusing on getting hold of new bras, but I can't really do that yet because I don't know how everything's going to shake out, so to speak. We should maybe give them out to patrons. (laughs) Yeah, if you sign up for our new $180 a month tier, you can get one of my bras, JK. And plus, they're from before I was a rabbi, so they're basically worthless. Yeah, no, it's true. The sweat that I sweated into them wasn't even rabbinical. It was just the sweat of a plebe. But, you know, maybe a patron would be interested right you can say i knew her win anything else happening in your life your rabbi boobies what that's not enough for you no it's it's plenty <laughs> it's not pl- enough for you life-changing surgery life-changing ordination what more do you want from me michael if i had said oh moving on you would have been like what that would be rude <laughs> well it's good that you know that i will object to what you say no matter what it is yeah that's, that's very true so there's nothing else Nothing else? Uh, No, not that I can think of. Nothing that could compete with that top billing. I don't know if the boobs or the rabbi has top billing. Mm, Yeah. Something to think about. Listeners, write in and tell us which one I should put on front on the playbill. Or draw a marquee in the style of like 1930s Hollywood light bulbs. Mm -hmm. That'd be good. Michael. Yes. You chose our topic for today. Yeah, I did. Much to your own chagrin. Yeah, much to my own chagrin. Why did you choose it in the first place? Remember last week we were talking about Russian Doll. And Mm -hmm. you brought a passage about what to do in the situation of two people in the desert. Right. And Rebbe Akiva came with a new understanding. Right. It was two people in the desert with enough water for one of them to survive before they can get back to civilization. Right. Original ruling was they should both just die. Rabbi Akiva said, no, you need to preserve your own life, so you should drink the water, which kind of doesn't really answer the question. I mean, it kind of implies that both people should fight to the death for the water. Right, right. I mean, not to return to last week's discussion, but I was talking about this with a friend during the week, and they made a point that you may have already made during our discussion, which is just like, the point of this story is not to actually figure out what to do in the desert. The point of the story is to like, make you have this conversation and be influenced by it in other areas of your life. Because if you're in the desert, you're going to be basically like, you're not going to be acting based on what Rabbi Akiva said. You're going to be making your choices based on completely different factors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree. Like, I think we talked about in the last episode, like, this sort of question boils down to, like, the problem of uh, human existence and self-awareness and all that stuff. Should we have even existed in the first place? If we didn't exist in the first right. place, we wouldn't have had have to have these annoying problems, <laughs> problems. to deal with. 
But, you know, there was something kind of annoying about the Akiva declaration anyway. So you thought, I wonder just how annoying this guy is. Well, yeah. Also, like, Akiva, you know, he's like a big deal. He is a big deal. And I wanted to know more about uh, why he was a big deal. And I mostly discovered things I kind of already knew. Or kind of already figured out from context about why he's a big deal. How should we start this off? Because I imagine we have a lot of the same material. Yeah, yeah. I imagine we do. I have a bunch of big old paragraphs to start with about just like the origins of Akiva. So this is from Avadrabhinathan 6, where we read, and this is going to be in translation because it's long as hell. What were the origins of Rabbi Akiva? They say that he was 40 years old and had still not learned anything. Once he was standing at the mouth of a well, and he said, Who carved a hole in this stone? And they said to him, It is from the water, which constantly drips on it day after day. And they said, Akiva, don't you know this from the verse Job 14.19, Water erodes stones? Rabbi Akiva immediately applied this, all the more so to himself. He said, If something soft can carve something hard, then all the more so the words of Torah, which are like steel, can engrave themselves on my heart, which is but flesh and blood. And he immediately went to start studying Torah. There's like four more paragraphs, but let's just stop after each paragraph. Okay, this is origin one. Origin story one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Akiva, as a historical figure, lived first century to second century. And this paragraph makes allusion to his start as a learner of Hebrew and Torah at the age of 40. Right. And this is one of the things that always people make a big deal out of about Akiva is that he started learning really late in life. Yeah. Especially for his time when someone would normally be learning from like very early childhood, which I have conflicted feelings about because it is really cool and encouraging to think about being able to pick up things when you feel like it's too late. And also, anytime someone's like, Like, would Akiva be as cool if he had just been learning from childhood? I don't know. Something bugs me about, like, Akiva getting this extra cred because of this, I guess. I don't know. Like, it's patronizing or something? Yeah, it's patronizing. Oh, I see. It's patronizing. I mean, I think the good part is, like, the deal with many of his teachings is that he had a fresh perspective because he came to the learning as an adult, which I can very much relate to and think is very special. But also... it. On the other hand, it feels like if he can do it, anyone can do it, you know, and that comes off very patronizing. Like if a loser like Akiva can learn, yeah, yeah. All, of, all the rest of us losers can do it. Okay, so he went with his son and they sat down by the school teachers and he said to one, Rabbi, teach me Torah. He then took hold of one end of the tablet and his son took hold of the other end. And the teacher wrote down Aleph and Bet for him and he learned. Aleph to Tav, he learned them. And then the book of Leviticus, he learned it. Basically, this is just meaning like he learned the basic stuff in the order that kids learn it. And he went on studying until he learned the whole Torah. Then he went and sat before Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Joshua. My masters, he said, open up the sense of the Mishnah to me. And when they told him one law, he went off and sat down to work it out himself. This Aleph, what was it written for? This Bet, what was it written for? Why was this thing said? He kept coming back and asking him until he reduced his teachers to silence. So there's another thing that's a big deal about Akiva is he's often credited with originating this style of drosh and study specifically of interpreting things down to the level of the letter. 
Yeah, yeah. A type of like hyper close reading is attributed to him as opposed to what may have been the standard at the time or at least mythologically was the standard at the time was using just the basic rules of logic to do your droshing off of the verses in the Torah. That was the extent of your exegesis that you were allowed to engage in. Right. And this goes back to his whole deal is that he was willing to sort of look outside the ordinary lines of inquiry that other rabbis were taking because he was coming to his learning with a really fresh perspective. He hadn't been shaped by it as a child, so he like had all this imagination and perspective to bring to the study process. Right. So one of the examples that this paragraph you just read talks about is like, what is the significance of a letter? And there's other stories we're going to get into, which probably talk about the significance of like the calligraphy and the crowns on top of the Mm -hmm. letters. And then there's other things that are like, why are these phrases repeated? Or what is the significance of this redundant information? It must have a hidden meaning. So adding another whole dimension of interpretive possibilities is sort of credited to him. Right. So I'm going to skip a couple paragraphs that are just not as narratively interesting and then come to this conclusion, which is he was 40 years old when he went to study Torah. And after 13 years, he was teaching Torah to the masses. It was said that he did not leave the world until he had tables full of silver and gold and he could go up to his bed on golden ladders. And his wife would go out in a fancy gown with golden jewelry with an engraving of Jerusalem on it. And his students said, Rabbi, you're embarrassing us with all you've done for her. And he said to them, she suffered greatly with me for the sake of Torah. So this is like uh, the beginning of my bittersweet issues with Akipa. The sweet part is that he is a wife guy, it seems. Oh, he's all about his wife. As a wife girl, as a wife uh not yet a wife a future wife future wife yeah future wife wife of the lord michael so akiva's a wife guy he decks his wife out and all the other rabbis are like akiva you're spoiling your wife too much your love for your wife is embarrassing to the entire community and akiva's like shrug that's what i gotta do man especially like how it all you know how it ends for him i feel like you gotta live large He was living large. He was living large. But the bitter part of this is the suffering greatly with him for the sake of Torah, which I have to admit my interpretation here has been really influenced by Yochi Brandis's book, The Orchard, which is about the life of Akiva, but is primarily written from the perspective of his wife. And it really made me feel like Akiva really, I don't know, just like she doesn't get enough credit, basically, I feel like. Even though... We have this line about Akiva being like, giving her all this jewelry and saying she suffered greatly with me. It's like, at the end of the day, Akiva is still the hero, even though Akiva only was able to be a hero like because of her. Yeah, she gave him permission. Right. I have all those paragraphs, too. Oh, you do? Okay, yes. Well, yes. let's talk about the wife suffering. Okay, wife suffering. Now we're jumping to Ketubot 62b. Rabbi Akiva was the shepherd of Ben Kalva Savua, one of the wealthy residents of Jerusalem. The daughter of Ben Kalva Savua saw that he was humble and refined, and she said to him, If I betroth myself to you, will you go to the study hall and learn Torah? And he said to her, Yes. So, entrapped by a Torah learning promise, she is like, I will marry you if you go and be a scholar. She became betrothed to him privately and sent him off to study. Her father heard of this and became angry. He removed her from his house and took a vow of prohibiting her from benefiting from his property. 
Rabbi Akiva went and sat for 12 years in the study hall. When he came back to his house, he brought 12,000 students with him, and as he approached, he heard an old man saying to his wife, For how long will you lead the life of a widow of a living man, living alone while your husband is in another place? She said to him, If he would listen to me, he would sit and study for another 12 years. When Rabbi Akiva heard this, he said, I have permission to do this. And he went back for another 12 years into the study hall. And when he came back, he brought 24,000 students with him. So he comes back with a crowd of groupies. Yeah. And he overhears his wife saying, I wish he would go back for another 12 years. Yeah. And he does. So nothing against the daughter of Kalba Savua. I'm sure she was a very righteous woman. But something about this story feels a little bit fishy to me. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like, uh, Akiva doesn't understand hyperbole. Yeah, also, like, it's hard for me to imagine a woman sending off the basically the only source of her and her children's sustenance for yeah. tw- another 12 years. This is the thing. This is the thing. Okay, like, all the stuff you're bringing, Hava, it's stuff that I, w- I thought about bringing. I was like, I could bring this. I could bring this. <laughs> And it all just kind of, it's Superman bullshit. That's the thing that frustrates me about it. What was interesting about Akiva was the, the like, the hermeneutical ideas mm-hmm. of how to interpret, you know, Torah. So and- what you're saying is that you're tired of stories about powerful, interesting dudes who are shitty to other people in their life. Kind of, yeah. I mean, it's boring. It's basic. I've heard it before. Maybe this is one of the originals. You know, maybe I should have heard this one. And instead, I've been, you know, exposed to other stories, mostly created in the 20th century. Who knows? But that's mm-hmm. the thing that's... Fr- there's something about it. It's all just very boring because all the other myth is just really just like righteous, righteous, righteous this, righteous that, really good scholar this. It's just like, oh my God, shut up. This is a... <laughs> this is like a try hard. What a try hard, you know? <sighs> Michael. Yeah, I mean, I hear you. I feel like the real story, the real interest here is like how resistant you are to like liking anyone. Um, what? What do you say? <laughs> Look, I like or you. Or just like perhaps how we both are very predisposed to be suspicious of all rabbinic characters. No, I don't I think it's I think it's deeper than that, at least for me. I'm I've become very suspicious of anyone who who seems to be playing by the rules if i were writing the story of akiva if i was like pitching a script i think akiva would be much more interesting if he came up with all these nice new hermeneutical rules but then he came back to his wife with no followers and then he died like a tragic death which he did anyway and then like 50 years later yeah van gogh van gogh is a much more compelling story it's a much more complex story i want batman i don't want superman right well this is why I'm drawing our attention to Bat Kalba Savua, to the daughter of Kalba Savua, because I feel like she's the real character of the story. Uh, I like it. I like this. I like this. Okay. She's like the real one who's out there having experiences, being alone at home. And we have to wonder, when she got to that point where she was going out with all that jewelry, with gold jewelry, with a picture of Jerusalem on it, like... Did she ultimately feel like it was worth it after all that time? Or was it still somewhat bitter for her? That's what I wonder about. Or was she, as the story depicts her, like truly she was actually driving the whole situation. And she was like, yes, like get out there. Don't come back to me. Don't speak to me until you studied for 24 years. I don't know. But let's just get to the end of this Kalba Savua 
story. He comes back after another 12 years. His wife went out towards him and greeted him, and his neighbor said, borrow some clothes and wear them, as your current apparel is not appropriate to meet an important person. And she said to him, a righteous man understands the life of his beast. Proverbs 12.10. Okay, just have to pause for this moment. This also makes me feel like Bat Kawasavua is really suffering, basically, because she is describing herself essentially as Akiva's beast of burden. And she's like, Akiva is righteous, so he'll know basically like why I'm in such a disheveled state and he'll be fine with it. Oh, okay. So it feels like there's a little, maybe a little backhandedness to this Torah quote. When she came to him, she fell on her face and kissed his feet. His attendants pushed her away as they did not know who she was. And he said to them, leave her alone as my Torah knowledge and yours is actually hers. So that's a line. That's now we're back again on the positives. of That's very nice, Akiva. I see. You know, and it is like that's one of I think one of the best credit lines we get for women's like learning and righteousness in the Talmud. Like one of the most credit any female character ever gets. And I do just like that concept of like our learning and Torah like actually belongs to the people who support it and enable us to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. I I feel that way about like everything. All of our knowledge that we have is and even our possessions are not really truly ours. Right. You know, my toothbrush is your toothbrush. (laughs) I don't know about that one specifically. (laughs) I mean, spiritually, I'm willing to share our toothbrushes, but physically i'm not yeah no it's fine it's fine yeah that was nice that was a nice line i don't know i don't know i don't know maybe i'm just in a bad mood today Hava, but it's all just very saccharine to me you're not into the tale i'm just not i'm not into the tale i'm not into the tale well there's much more other stuff to talk about but anyway she comes back her father forgives them and gives them a bunch of money and everything's fine that's the main narrative thrust of it all. What kind of stuff did you bring? I have other stuff too, but it's your turn now. Well, there was a little story related to Akiva that I thought was cool Mm -hmm. that added a little darkness to the picture. Okay. And I bet you know this. It's on Menachot 29b. Oh yeah, baby. Ravi Huda says that Rav says, when Moses ascended on high, he found the Holy One, blessed be he, sitting and tying crowns on the letters of the Torah. Moses said, Master of the universe, who is preventing you from giving the Torah without these additions? God said to him, There is a man who is destined to be born after several generations, and Akiva ben Yosef is his name. He is destined to derive from each and every thorn of these crowns mounds upon mounds of halachot. It is for his sake that the crowns must be added to the letters of the Torah. That's part one of the story. Which is great. I'm confused a little bit by the timey-wiminess. So Moses, like, dies, goes to heaven, sees God writing down the Torah and asks, why are you doing this before giving it? But Moses dies after the Torah is revealed. So, like, what's going on there? I'm not totally convinced that this story is happening after Moses dies. Let's see, Amar, yeah, ascended on high. Moshe the Merom. Yeah, basically he just went up. Yeah, he went up. So, so this could be speaking about the time when he was up there receiving the Torah directly from God. On the mountain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still a very timey-wimey story. It's all about time travel, and it gets into one of my, and I think also your favorite concepts, which is the angel of history. 
Oh, that's one of my favorite concepts. Oh, maybe you don't know. Maybe we haven't talked about it as much as I thought we have. But first, tell the next part, and then we'll talk about that and the angel of history. The story continues. So Moses said, Master of the universe, show him to me. God said to him, return behind you. Moses went and sat at the end of the eighth row in Rabbi Akiva's study hall and did not understand what they were saying. Moses' strength waned as he thought his Torah knowledge was deficient. When Rabbi Akiva arrived at the discussion of one matter, his students said to him, My teacher, from where do you derive this? Rabbi Akiva said to him, It is a halacha transmitted to Moses from Sinai. When Moses heard this, his mind was put at ease, as this too was part of the Torah that he was to receive. Okay, so... This is great. It's the classic, you know, most foundational interpretation of this is like it really supports the idea of innovation in the tradition because Moses's mind is comforted just knowing that like he is still used as a source for the tradition in the future, even if he doesn't actually know the halakha in the present. So the angel of history is a concept sort of minted by Walter Benjamin, who we have talked about on the show before and who I will talk about all the time to anyone who will listen. He was a uh, German Jewish philosopher and writer who tragically died in the Shoah. He was great and brilliant. And here's what he says about the angel of history. This is how one pictures the angel of history. His face is turned towards the past. Where we perceive a chain of events, he sees one single catastrophe which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage and hurls it at his feet. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead, and make whole what has been smashed. But a storm is blowing from paradise. It has got caught in his wings with such violence that the angel can no longer close him. The storm irresistibly propels him into the future to which his back is turned, while the pile of debris before him grows skyward. This storm is what we call progress. So, I love that shit. And I think about oh, it every yeah. day. It's really influential to my thinking about Talmud. But basically, the like long and short of the surface level is the deal is the angel of history, what we call history in general, is tasked with the process of turning the wreckage and suffering and chaos of the past into something whole. And that project is forever prevented by progress and by moving forward into the future. Walter Benjamin was very focused on the idea of using vengeance for the past as a central motivator for political change rather than hope for the future, or also healing of the past, which is intimately connected for him with vengeance. Anyway, Walter Benjamin, really interesting guy. The reason I bring it up here is because it's really crucial to note in the story the dimensions in which time exists. When God tells Moses to look into the future, he says, turn yourself around, meaning that the future is to his back, just like the angel of history. And just like Moses, just like us, just like everyone who looks at history, Moses, like all of us, can only see the past and is forever being sucked towards a future that he doesn't understand and unable to make whole what he sees. And this is a moment where God allows basically like 
what can never be allowed for the rest of us, which is to like turn around. Mm. He basically gives Moses the privilege of making sense of history in the present moment. Wow, that's neat. Yeah, it's like the image of standing on the back of a of a motorboat and seeing like the wake. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. Angel of History, super important for my sense of Talmud. I think what we are trying to do when we study Talmud is to take on the task of the Angel of History and to make sense of the wreckage of which the Talmud is sort of one piece of. And we're doing part of Walter Benjamin's project of healing the past by sifting through that wreckage and, and turning it into something that makes sense. Oh, it's interesting, though, the political, I'd like that as a way of motivating your politics, retribution for the past rather than trying to create a utopia in the future. That's interesting. Right. Retribution or healing. Of the past. Putting the ghosts of the past to rest is, is a more clear way to say it. Do you have any thoughts about how this perspective, how you evaluate political ideas? According to this perspective? Yeah, yeah. I think it's hard to apply this perspective on an idea-by-idea idea basis. Like, it's hard to look at a political bill that's like, oh, should we expand this budgetary matter or not? And be like... Is this oriented towards the past or the future? But I think in terms of broader political currents, I think one of the reasons Benjamin wants to turn us away from the future is because capital and state power are very interested in using the idea of perennial sacrifice for an illusory future. Yeah, sure. For their benefit. See, we should have done an episode on Walter Benjamin instead of instead of Akiva. For me, every episode is on Walter Benjamin. Oh, that's funny. I mean, I knew we would do this story, and I knew I would talk about this. So for me, I was prepared for this very moment. Any episode can become a Walter Benjamin episode with the right attitude. Uh, that's good. Uh, I, there's another part of this story, though. Yes, and I have other postscripts to add that will weave in the Benjamin even more. So you finish a story, and then I'll bring in even more stuff. So Moses returned... And came back before the Holy One, blessed be he, and said before him, Master of the universe, you have a man as great as this, and yet you choose to give the Torah through me? Why? And God said to him, Shatok, kaf, Allah, b'macha shavah, lifnei. Be silent. This idea arose inside my mind. Moses said before God, Master of the universe, you have shown me Rabbi Akiva's Torah. Now show me his reward. God said to him, Return to where you were. Moses went back and saw that they were weighing Rabbi Akiva's flesh in a butcher shop because Rabbi Akiva was murdered by the Romans for his support of the Bar Kokhba rebellion. So Moses said, Master of the universe, this is Torah and this is its reward. God said to him, again, be silent. This idea arose inside my mind. So this phrase, Amarlo Shetok Kaf Allah Bamacha Shava Lifana, is this line that God has used twice on Moses. Mm -hmm. Once when Moses asks him, Why did you give the Torah to me and not to Akiva? Akiva's so brilliant. And God's like, this is my idea. Basically, don't ask. Right. This is my art, okay? And then Moses asks, why is this the reward of someone who, you know, is such a master of Torah? And God gives the same response back to Moses. So a little dark, a little mysterious. Yes. Very dark and mysterious. Very, there is no reason to anything. Mm -hmm. Very, um, one of the many times where Talmud's understandings of morality come into conflict with itself, I would say. 
Because in, in other places, the Talmud is like, everything happens for a reason. Only good stuff happens to good people. Bad stuff happens to bad people. And here it's like, I don't know. God just does stuff sometimes. <laughs> don't worry about it. It's all very contradictory. That, what you just said, contradicts this. And then there's the whole free will thing that, you know, is definitely right. a thing that exists in Judaism. Which and... is something Akiva has something to say about. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, so here are some other postscripts that I'm going to bring. And then I'll bring another Walter Benjamin quote. And then we'll talk about that some more. Akiva was a big follower of Bar Kokhba. For those of you who don't know, Bar Kokhba was this figure who led a revolt in the Second Temple period, was hanging around Akiva's time, one of the last major political military revolutions of the Jews in this era and for a long time. In the Jerusalem Talmud Ta'anit 4, we read, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai taught, Rabbi Akiva explained to the verse, a star comes forth from Jacob as Kosiba comes forth from Jacob. Basically, Akiva's is making a drosh on the similarity between Bar Kokhba and Shimon Bar Kokhba's original name, which is Bar Kosiba. And Akiva's using this drosh to suggest that Bar Kokhba is the Messiah. So Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai basically taught that Rabbi Akiva thought that Bar Kokhba was the Messiah. And when Rabbi Akiva would see Bar Kokhba, he would declare, this is the King Messiah. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Torta said to him, Akiva, grass will grow from your cheeks and still the son of David will not have come. So basically, one of his colleagues would always say to him, like, you're going to be dead and gone and still the Messiah will not have come. You are a fool. This is an important part of why Akiva was ultimately executed later is because he was a big supporter of the Bar Kokhba rebellion. Yeah. Then, let's wrap that in with some other stuff, a bunch of other stuff, a bunch of other cool stuff. Gosh, there's so much material. Here's a parable. In Brachot 61b, the Gemara relates, the sages taught one time after the Bakochba rebellion, the evil empire of Rome decreed that we may not study Torah. Papos ben Yehuda came and found Rabbi Akiva, who was convening assemblies and engaging in Torah study. Papo said to him, Akiva, are you not afraid of the empire? And Akiva answered him, I will relate a parable. It's like a fox walking along a riverbank when he sees fish gathering and fleeing from place to place. The fox says, from what are you fleeing? And the fish say to him, we're fleeing from the nets that people cast upon us. He said to him, do you wish to come up onto dry land and we will reside together just as my ancestors resided with your ancestors? And the fish said to him, are you really the one of whom they say is the cleverest of animals? You're not clever, you're a fool. If we are afraid of water, our natural habitat which gives us life, then in a habitat which causes us our death, all the more so. So too, we Jews now sit and engage in Torah study, about which is written, for that is your life and the length of your days. We fear the empire to this extent. If we proceed to sit idle from its study, as its abandonment is the habitat that causes our death, all the more so we will fear the empire. And the sages said, not a few days passed after this until they seized Rabbi Akiva and put him in prison. So... Really fun parable about fox and fish. Anytime there's talking animals in the Talmud, I love it. Yep. But Rabbi Akiva is basically like, we're already afraid of the empire. If we stop studying Torah, we'll just be more afraid of the empire. So we might as well keep studying Torah. Yeah, yeah. Classic lesson. One I often turn to when I think, why am I studying Talmud? Why does this matter? The earth will be consumed by the sun. And then I think to myself, 
well, if the Earth is going to be consumed by the sun anyway, you'll probably be more upset if you don't study Talmud. So you might as well study Talmud. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. I, I don't take you as a fear-motivated <laughs> person. Well, I try not to be. That's yeah. the thing. That's the struggle. I think this is like when your deck of other coping mechanisms is down to a few cards, you know. As it so often is. Yeah. This is like the last card you pull out. Right. Okay, more Rabbi Akiva stuff. We know that Rabbi Akiva, after the Romans arrest him, he gets executed in a really gruesome way. You can look it up if you want to learn about it. It's gnarly, uh, worthy of Hellraiser for sure. And here are some other teachings of Rabbi Akiva that feel relevant to me. Famously, Rabbi Akiva says in Pirkei Avot 3, Hakol tafui b'haroshut netuna uvtov ha'olam niton v'hakol lefi rav ha'maseh. So everything is foreseen, and yet free will is given. And with goodness, the world is judged, and all is in accordance with the majority of the deed. So Akiva was a a non-dualist, it seems, at least in some respects. He believed in both predestination and in free will, really trying to trying to split the mm-hmm. split the hairs there, and was also sort of a perennial optimist. There's another story of his optimism in Brachot 60b. Akiva would always say, one must accustom oneself to say, everything God does, he does for the best. The Gemara relates, it's like this. When Rabbi Akiva was walking along the road, he came to a city and inquired about lodging, but they didn't have any. And he said, everything that God does, he does for the best. He went and slept in a field, and he had with him a rooster, a donkey, and a candle. A gust of wind came and extinguished a candle. A cat came and ate the rooster, and a lion came and ate the donkey. He said, everything that God does, he does for the best. That night, an army came and took the city into captivity. It turned out that Rebbe Akiva alone, who was not in the city and had no lit candle, noisy rooster, or donkey to give away his location, was saved. And he said to him, didn't I tell you everything that God does, he does for the best. So, Rebbe Akiva, eternal optimist. We're back on the pro Rebbe Akiva part of the podcast. Eternal optimist, believer in free will, even after his life is slowly and utterly being ruined over the course of the failure of the Bar Kokhba rebellion. Yeah, I forget what I was originally trying to relate this to, but it just feels like Akiva really, I don't know, in these moments he's embodying something that I really admire, and he's embodying this sort of like embrace of both the futility and the hopefulness of life. Yeah, uh, and yeah, I, I think maybe to put a bow on Akiva believing in free will, but also believing in like there's some sort of divine plan, The having these two conflicting ideas in your head and living with them. It's very similar to how Jews think of him now today as being able to hold in his head respect for the, the word of God, but also an ability to innovate for modern mm-hmm. times with the way he did interpretive stuff. Kind of having your foot in both and striking that balance, I think that... That's very similar. Also, I feel like this whole deal with free will and optimism, it just feels connected to the idea of perspective and the angel of history. And just like, I don't know, the way in which Akiva is looking at things from a way that's like paradoxical with regard to time. Like he believes that there's a plan and also that there's free will. So basically he believes that like the future is all laid out and also it's developing at the same time. Something about that feels like it resonates with the angel of history that like is seeing everything laid out before them and also being sucked into the unknown. The historical context is this is all after the Second Temple is destroyed, the Bar Kokhba rebellion and and Mm -hmm. his teaching and learning. So Judaism is nascent 
and there are competing sects around. And like Akiva is this kind of nationalist who's trying to weave together something and not mm-hmm. knowing what the future holds and trying to right. fit it all together. And I think that's something also that's so interesting is like we could have really easily ended up without Akiva and the tradition because he was sort of at least from one degree on the losing side of a certain version of Judaism, you know? Bar Kokhba had his own vision of what Jewish identity and Jewish peoplehood would become. And Akiva yeah. was on that team, and we could have really easily ended up with a Shabbatai situation, you know? Go on. It's just interesting for someone who believed that the Messiah had come, and then that person was proven to, quote, not be the Messiah. Yeah, yeah, And yet yeah. they still got included in the Talmud. I guess that's kind of interesting. Like, you'd imagine that there might be hardline Sadducees who are really pro-Bar Kokhba or something, like, who want to return to Judea and, like, how the way things used to be, like, almost like a conservative, and Mm -hmm. how there might be more, like, oh, that's all gone and we need to create a whole new Judaism. And it's kind of interesting that Akiva, he has a foot in both of those. Right. He's a bridge. He's a very well-diversified portfolio non-binary king not yeah of yeah <laughs> so i guess in that way he's a kind of interesting and, and complicated and i hadn't thought about that so before. what you're saying is that i brought you around no no you didn't bring me around i'm still <laughs> here's the thing here's the thing i'm still you grumpy can't resist the spell of rabbi akiva no i can i'm resisting hardcore i'm still grumpy you did not make me not grumpy i don't know why i'm grumpy I don't know why you're so resistant to being cheered up. It sounds like you want to be grumpy. I want to be grumpy, goddammit. Great. As long as you can admit that to yourself. I want to be grumpy. That it's a choice. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't want to be grumpy. Thank you all so much for coming on this wackadoo journey with us, uh, being sucked into the future by the winds of time. Mm-hmm. If you would like to support our continued making of this show, we would love for you to join our Patreon at patreon.com slash hi, how are you? There is a whole bevy of maybe a hundred or so patron-only episodes that you can still get access to only there. I recently was informed that you can, a bunch of podcast apps have the option for custom RSS feeds. Yes. And you can take the RSS feed from the Patreon and get like double the hi, how are you in your podcast app so if you didn't know you can do that you can do that and then you can get so many more episodes that you don't have access to and if you're not able to join our patreon then please tell your friends if you like the show we would appreciate that so much regardless you're all superstars we love you and also we may not be here next week because i'll be recovering from surgery that's right okay shavuoto shavuoto shavuoto